Hello, everyone, and welcome to the 126th episode of the Atlas Society Asks. My name is Jennifer Anju Grossman, but you can please call me JAG. I'm the CEO of the Atlas Society. We are the leading nonprofit organization introducing young people to the ideas of Ayn Rand in fun, creative ways like graphic novels and animated videos. Today, we are joined by Dr. Rainer Zeidelman. Before I even begin to introduce our guest today, I want to remind all of you who are watching us on Zoom, Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, LinkedIn, YouTube, go ahead, start typing in your questions on any of those platforms and we will get to as many of them as we can. So I'm really thrilled to have this guest with us today, Dr. Rainer Zeidelman. Uh, you are going to hear a bit, lot of overlap between some of the topics that uh, he researches and writes about, as well as Ayn Rand. Uh, he is a German historian. He's a sociologist. He taught in academia before transitioning to the private sector as a successful entrepreneur, real estate investor, and of course, a world-renowned author of 25 books including The Power of Capitalism, The Rich in Public Opinion, The Art of a Successful Life, and Hitler's National Socialism. We're also going to talk about his upcoming book, In Defense of Capitalism. Dr. Zeidelman, thank you for joining us. Thank you for inviting me. It's a pleasure. I'm now here in Miami. The United States are not so far away as usually because I'm based in, in Berlin, in Germany. Well, that's fantastic. We, we love to have you here, selfishly. We'd love to keep you. Uh, but I know you're a traveling man. And um, our audience is always interested in origin stories. So tell us a bit about you, what influ influenced your early interest in political science and sociology. I understand, for example, your father was a preacher. So I'd be interested in how his views on money uh, may have um, influenced you or whether you kind of rebelled against them? I have a very good contact today with my father. He's 93 years old and he's still writing books, but he's more left-leaning as, of course, I was and when I was young, uh, to have a left-leaning father and then to go in opposition, you have two possibilities. The first would be to go very extreme right wing, this was not my way, or extreme left wing, this was my way. So I was very left-leaning. When I was 13 years old, I founded a Maoist group at my school, and I had a newspaper, and I edited a newspaper, Red Banner, and uh, I had always this contact with uh, Beijing, and they sent me their the newspapers and so for Beijing. So I was really a left-wing extremist and I read all these books by Marx, Engels, Lenin, Stalin, Mao, uh, uh, everything. Uh, if, if I got, uh, when I was 14 years old, uh, I, I gave seminars to students that were 10 or 15 years older than me about Marxist theory and uh, all this stuff. So this was how I, how I started. And of course, later on, it's, uh, it's uh, changed. Then it was a period, maybe 10, 10 years in my life that I was so very, very left, left leaning. And then later on, I studied um, history and political science. And I wrote my 
first doctoral dissertation about uh, Adolf Hitler's worldview. You announced this book, it was republished now some month ago in English language uh, as Hitler's National Socialism. And um, yes, then I was, uh, I was assistant uh, uh, at the Free University of uh, Berlin. And after this, I was in a leading position of one of the leading German newspapers. And then I, I founded my own company with, I was older, with 43 years old. And um, it was a very successful public relation company. I made a lot of money at this time and I made a lot of very good investments at this time. And 15 years later, I sold the company and then I returned back to what I do today, writing my books, doing my research, traveling all over the world. And I can do it because I'm financial free because my research is very, very expensive and you don't get it back from selling books. I can tell you for my next book in defense of capitalism, the costs for the, I, I, I have, we, we do polls in 27 countries. If I, if I add what I, the expenses for the polls, then I give some money for translation costs and then for this traveling expenses, it will be more than $1 million. Uh, and of course you can't get it back from, from selling the books, even if they sell good. So, but I can do it now. Uh, other wealthy people, they buy maybe a new car. So I have the same car since 15 years. And so I, I don't need a, another car, but uh, I love to do my, my research and uh, writing my books. Well, we're, we're really very grateful for that. Now, uh, thinking back also in the era in which you grew up, I think you were probably about four years old when the Berlin Wall first went up. And then you talk about this time in your 30s of being a Maoist, uh, but that was also a time when the wall came down. I wonder if any reflections on that time uh, what it was like to live in Germany with the wall and then without the wall, uh, your experience during the time of transition and reunification. Yes, it's uh, correct what you said. I was, um, I was four years old, uh, old when they built the wall, but I was not a Marxist with my 30s, but as a teenager. So I was mm -hmm. between 13 and 23. So when the wall came down, it was uh, much uh, a, a very long time ago, but then I, I, I wasn't a Marxist or something like this. Yes, to, to remember, uh, even by the way, I can recommend, everyone can Google it on the internet. I produced a film, Life Behind the Berlin Wall, together with the Free to Choose Network. And you can find it uh, for free on the internet. And I'm proud that we got an award for this uh, film at the end um, uh, a film festival, film festival. At, at Freedom Fest in, in July. And so, uh, yes, uh, uh, at this time, Germany was divided in East and West and I lived in, in West Germany. And this was maybe the reason why I became Maoist because this was so close to us, East Germany, Germany, uh, uh, 
and, and we know that it was bad there. And we know that it was bad in Eastern Europe and in Russia, but China was far away and we could project all our uh, young utopian fantasies Fantasies. about perfect society to China because of course I wasn't there in China, it was so far away. And the only thing that I knew about China at this time was what I read um, every week in uh, Beijing Review that they send in German language to us and this uh, propaganda. And uh, we we didn't like uh, East Germany, the political system and Soviet Union. These were also our enemies as at the same time as capitalists. So we believed in this uh, Mao system. Today, of course, I know how how really terrible it was and that, uh, yes, in the time when, when I was uh, one or two years old, this uh, great leap forward happened in China and a lot of people don't know about it. I speak about it all over the world because my book, The Power of Capitalism, starts with a chapter about China and with the so-called great leap forward where 45 million people died. And I ask everywhere in the world, young people, have you ever heard about this at school? And only very few people raise their hand. Most of them haven't heard anything about it. And I think it's terrible because it's one of the biggest socialist experiment in history and 45 million people died and they they don't teach them at school. I I had a controversial on Twitter in Germany with someone left-leaning and he said, no, I don't think that people should... uh, learn this at school. And I said, why Why not? Yes, it happened in China and this is far away and why should we be interested in this? But would, ha- would, would he say the same thing if it is about slavery in uh, United States or something like this? And it's not far away. So right, or of course, of course, national socialism. Your scholarship and your books have made you perhaps the world's leading expert on Adolf Hitler and national socialism, including your book, Hitler's National Socialism, which as you mentioned was just uh, republished. How much did the egalitarian ideals of socialism inspire Hitler's project? And what are some of the ways in which the conventional views of Hitler should be revised according to your perspective? For example, you know, people say, well, Hitler was a fascist not a socialist. How, uh, how did he view it and, and what's your take? So he called himself a socialist and of course he was not a socialist in this way as the communists are because he was against nationalization of all private property in the first class. But this doesn't mean uh, that he introduced uh, private property. He had another idea. So to, in, in some of his speeches, he, he explained it this way. We, the state, tell the entrepreneurs, you have to do this and that. And if they do it, we are fine with this. Everything's okay, then we don't have to do that. But if they retract, then we will tell them, you have to do it. And if they don't do it, then we will do it, the state will, will do it. So this was his uh, philosophy. And um, so he wasn't uh, in, in no way a supporter of uh, private property. And, for, and one of the results, what I show in my book, that 
starting in the beginning, in the middle of the 30s, and especially in the beginning of the 40s, he became more and more an admirer of the plant economy in Soviet Union, and even an uh, admirer of Stalin. Uh, of course, uh, in his public speeches, he, uh, he was very anti-communist and anti-Soviet Union, but if he spoke in his inner circle, and we have, uh, we have a lot of notes about his so-called table talks, his monologues in the Führer headquarter, he spoke very positive about Stalin and Soviet Union. He said they, there were no people jobless as in the United States, and he thought that the planned economy in the Soviet Union is much superior to uh, capitalism. And uh, this was what he thought. And so uh, his idea was, and he said it several times, after the, after the war, uh, the Sherman economy should be more and more transferred. He started to transfer it in a planned economy, but this was only the beginning. He said it in one of his table talks, in this process of restructuring the Sherman economy uh, as a planned economy, we are only at the beginning. And so in this way, um, he, was, he wasn't a socialist in this Marxist way with nationalization of, of all private property because he, be, he was a social Darwinist. And so he believed in competition. And his, uh, he, he was afraid that if you nationalize everything, that there is no, no more competition. And because as a social Darwinist, competition was very important for them. But more important for him was what he called the primacy of the politics, so that uh, that the um, that the state has to tell the entrepreneurs what what to do. Interesting. All right. Well, let's get to your study, uh, the wealth elite: a groundbreaking study of the psychology of the super rich. Tell us a bit about what you hoped to set out to investigate uh, your methodology and some of your findings about the psychology of the super rich. Yes, uh, by the way, we speak now about my second doctoral dissertation. I have two PhDs. The first one was this about Hitler and the second one was this, but it's only now seven years ago, the second one. And at this time, I was an entrepreneur and I was rich. So I did it um, in my, in the time when I was an entrepreneur, I started to write in, in the evening or at the weekend in my vacation, I, I worked on this. And what, what did I do? There are a lot of books, uh, how to get rich. And this, some of them are, are good, but, a lot of them are, are, are bad. And what I found out that there is almost no scientific research, especially in the topic about um, the connection between personality traits on the one hand and financial success on the other hand. And in all of the self-help books, you, they are not science-based. And this is the difference that I'm a scientist, you know, I, I, I believe in this, uh, scientific research and a quantitative research about this group is not possible because this group is so very small that you can't have 
something you, you can't find that if you do a poll uh, like you like for, for you do it with other research so what i did you call it the sociology qualitative research i i had 45 interviews with very wealthy people the poorest of them had a net worth between 10 and 30 million dollars it's but more than 30 million dollars most of them were between 30 million and 1 billion and some of them were multi-billionaires and i spoke with 45 of them with everyone uh, between one and two hours and in the end i had 1700 uh, pages with transcriptions uh, so a lot to analyze and uh, in addition to this everyone uh, completed a psychological test. This is a so-called uh, big five uh, test about uh, five uh, personality traits. So, so I had a lot of things to analyze and what I wanted to find out um, whether there's this, any relationship between their personality traits and, and, their, and their financial success. And uh, I found some patterns to everyone want to find what do they have in common and first to be honest not all rich people are the same as not all poor people are the same but this is correct on the one hand on the other hand you can find something that they have in common in their biography in their attitudes in their psychology and yes this was the topic of my doctoral dissertation Yes, so I, I, I think I recall conscientiousness was a high prevalence yes. personality trait. Um, also, self-confidence, believing that you can do something, a bit of a trailblazer, not necessarily always uh, feeling like you had to follow the, the beaten path. One of the other uh, striking findings I found in your study was that many of the super rich were competitive athletes in their youth. And I thought that was interesting because uh, by contrast, they weren't necessarily academic overachiever. And that certainly contradicts popular stereotypes about dumb jocks versus, you know, the nerds. And uh, it brings to mind some of the people that uh, we have profiled, like Chip Wilson, founder of Lululemon. What are some other examples that you found? No, this is absolutely correct. Um, maybe I go more in detail about this topic. Uh, I asked every one of them whether how, how they were at school, about their performance at school and university. And the result is there was absolutely no relationship between their performance at school or university on the one hand and their later financial success on the other hand. Some of them were very good at school or had even doctor degree. Other Others, they even had no high school degree and, and nothing, so this, this was not important. But then I asked them uh, about the activities outside, outside school, alongside school, and um, two things were striking. One thing was, you mentioned this, half of them were competitive athletes. And I think they learned a lot, especially how to win, but much more important, how to lose. Mm -hmm. how to deal with with setbacks and with crisis. I think this was very important. And the other thing was a lot of them earned money 
with early entrepreneurial activities. So when I was young as a student, the other students, they earned money, for example, taxi driver or working in a restaurant or even in a factory. So they worked for an hourly wage. But the rich people, they earned money <clears throat> in sales, for example. Mm -hmm. They sold, they had so many ideas what to sell and early entrepreneurial activities. And I think these experiences were much more important than this what they learned at school and university. And this is a very important thing. Uh, intellectuals don't understand it, that there are two different ways of learning. In, um, the psych uh, in psychology, we distinguish between what we call implicit learning and explicit learning. Explicit learning, it's like uh, what you learn at school or university, book wisdom. And uh, this is one way to learn, important, of course, but there's another way, we call it implicit learning. This is learning by doing. This is what they did. You, 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 you don't uh, realize that you learn at this moment, but you learn something. And this is the, this implicit learning results in this, what we call implicit knowledge. Uh, another word is intuition or gut feeling. And this was also one of the results. I asked every one of them, how do you make your decision? Of course, every one of us, we need both. We need our intuition, gut feeling, and we need analysis. And I, I asked them, what, what is more important for you when you make decision in business? And most of them said, okay, I've used both, but gut feeling is more important. And then some people think, Gut feeling is something irrational or even mystical, but this is nonsense. It's not gut feeling. It's only another word. This is the result what, from this implicit learning process. And this is what intellectuals don't understand. I read this very good uh, book for, by Ayn Rand about uh, intellectuals, and, and she grabbed it also. This is what intellectuals, they, they don't understand the way how entrepreneurs learn. They only understand her book wisdom. And for intellectuals this way, if you read a lot of books, then you should have the highest position in society. And, and this is what teachers tell them and what they learn at university. This was also my background. My father was a priest, but he was also an academic, very well-read man and read a lot of books. And what I learned and what we, all these academics think, as more books you read, the higher should be your position society. And later they learn then if they leave university, oh, maybe there's my former school neighbor who has now maybe five McDonald's franchise or something like this. And he has the bigger car, the, the bigger house. And what's the worst thing, the, the prettier uh, woman or prettier wife. And then you think this is something is not correct with the market. We, something's not correct with capitalism because uh, I should have the prettier wife and the better car because I read much more books than this stupid <laughs> entrepreneur that has now only five McDonald's and he, he was bad at school. And so this is the thing because they don't understand intellectuals or why uh, the, this, this uh, uh, why implicit learning is so important. And in, in my other book, in my book about the, uh, the power of capitalism, I have one chapter. This is my favorite chapter, why intellectuals don't like uh, capitalism. And this is one of the reasons. 
we're, we're going to get to that. And I also thank you for bringing up Ayn Rand, because uh, I understand that uh, you have read uh, quite a bit of her nonfiction. And I know that you quote her extensively in your book. So we're going to get to that. But we also have quite a few people who are popping in with questions. And I want to keep that conversation going. So uh, I'm going to reach in and grab a couple of them uh, that I think are interesting, maybe a little bit off the topic, but relevant to particularly what you were discussing before with your early Maoist roots. My Modern Galt on Instagram is asking from a sociology perspective, do you think that the current cancel culture in the West is a version of the struggle sessions in communist China? Uh, sure, it started like this. And um, I, I, I wouldn't say it's the same because it's, it, in the end, it makes a difference whether you are canceled and you're an outsider or whether they, they kill you or they torture you. And this is what happened in China. But don't forget, words can become deeds. And it, it always starts at this way without, um, stare, without canceling people, hate speech against rich people, for example. This is one of my topics or with against people who have only a different opinion. It starts with hate speech and in the end, words can become deep. So I, I wouldn't say it's the same, uh, but uh, it's the beginning and we should, uh, we should be very sensitive because there's always the, the danger that it becomes more and more extreme. I give you one example. Um, they, um, protesters in Washington DC, they positioned a guillotine in front of the house of Emerson founder, Chief Bezos, a guillotine. So some people find, left people find it funny, <laughs> a guillotine, it's funny. But I think it's in no way funny because it's like people were killed in the French revolution and they would show that that's what we should do with Jeff Bezos. And, and uh, you have this t-shirts on the, you can uh, buy it on the internet, kill the rich or eat the rich, or uh, something like this. And it starts with this, and they find it funny maybe, but for me, uh, if, if I see things like this, for example, in, in Berlin, we had a big uh, 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 demonstration protest and they had the slogan, uh, kill your landlord. And when I saw it, I I thought, what would people say if there's a if there's a poster like "kill black people" or "kill Muslims"? Everyone would be outraged and, and rightly so. But with rich people, it seems to be okay. No one is, and so uh, we should be very very careful because we know it from history with with Jewish people. You know it anti-Semitism. So it started with a crazy ideology. It started with a hate speech and so, and later on it became very, very dangerous. So I, uh, I, I would say, yes, it's the, it's the same kind of thinking and we should be very careful that it, it can always become worse. This is what, what people sometimes don't, don't understand. I come now from a conference from Students for Liberty in, uh, here in Miami 
and there, there were refugees from Cuba and Venezuela, and they reminded the audience for one thing, Venezuela was 50 years ago, one of the 20 richest countries in the world, and it was a democracy and everyone thought there, it couldn't happen here, we are democracy and one of the richest countries, and it happened there. Now, 25% of population fled there, people are in hunger, there's a dictatorship. And she said, don't think about United States, it can't happen here, because it is the same what people thought in Venezuela, it can't happen there. Absolutely. And it all begins with envy. And we're going to get yes. to that. Um, Candace Jones on Facebook is asking about the terms left and right. She is uh, saying that weren't those terms originally used by communists and socialists when they were fighting each other in the 20s and 30s? Why do we continue to use the, the terms left and right today? I think in, in every country, in some countries, uh, it has no meaning at all. But in the United States and in Europe, most people think of themselves in a way like left and right. And of course, it has different, different meanings today. But um, um, of, and of course, there's a more important differentiation between collectivist approach and individualistic approach. And mm -hmm. um, some people on the far left and uh, far right have some things in common, their collectivistic approach. But of course, um, as an intellectual, you can think about it. And I know every intellectual tells me, oh, it's not important and right and re left, it has no meaning. But for most of the people, they know most whether the they yeah. position themselves anyway. And, and I, later on, I can tell you about my latest poll. I, I commissioned a poll now in 29 countries about the image of capitalism. And one of the questions was, we asked everyone to position himself on the left-right scale. What zero would mean far left and 10 far right and five in the middle. And most of the people could position themselves. Uh, on, and then we, we uh, looked whether there's a correlation between left and right wing th uh, thinking on the one hand and pro and anti-capitalism approach uh, on the on the other hand but of course uh, uh, of, of course uh, it's it's correct that that right has much different meaning there are some people for example i would describe myself as a moderate right if you're on this on this uh, uh, from from zero to ten, I would position myself, for example, with with seven uh, uh, today. But what does it mean? For me, it means more freedom is more important than equality. Uh, for for example, this is very important for left people. Always equality is the most important thing. And but of course, there are right wing nationalists like uh, some Trump supporters and so who don't like economic freedom in any way and so right right wing can mean a lot of different uh, things if it comes to topics like uh, like uh, um, and, and there are some topics of course words uh, where it's not so easy to differentiate between left and right for example now at this conference uh, there were a lot of advocates for uh, 
free uh, 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 abolish um, or I don't know how to say it, for free track use, you uh, canal present and also other trucks. And in a, in a way, in Germany, it's more like a left left leaning people support right. it, and conservative people are against it. But well, well, uh, yeah, one of the things I thought was so interesting about your work was um, particularly your 2020 book, The Rich in Public Opinion, which as you mentioned before, sprung out of this observation that of all of the groups uh, that uh, are, uh, we're not supposed to have any prejudice against and we are hypersensitive to not uh, having any bias against any preferred minority. Um, but we, we uh, kind of look the other way or it's, it doesn't raise any eyebrows uh, with regards to uh, what, of course, you know, Ayn Rand talked about as um, the most persecuted uh, minority. Of course, she was referring to big business rather than the uh, financially successful per se. But I was really fascinated by your social envy coefficient, which if I get it right, indicates the ratio of social enviers to non-enviers. Uh, you looked at different countries. You looked at France, I think Germany, um, Spain. Tell us about, you, you looked at the US and the UK. So tell us about your methodology and yes. also what did you find? So I thought that was just fascinating. Yeah, yes, uh, absolutely. So uh, I commissioned a poll uh, first for this book, but now it's it's ongoing. We we uh, after the book was published, uh, I uh, uh, we did it in a lot of other countries, and it was about the attitude toward rich people and especially about uh, envy. And first, if we speak about envy, there's almost no one who admits being envious. I'm not envious. These are the others. We know there's a research. We call it. Uh, Envious research, you find a chapter there in my book. Uh, I, I didn't know it before that there's a really a field of research about envy. And one of the results is that people can admit almost all emotions, even hate or whatever, but not to being envious because it means uh, that if you admit to being envious, it means you admit that there's someone who has something that you want to have and that you would like to have. And then this leads to the question, why do I not have it? And this could be very uncomfortable for your self-conscious soul. And so people don't, and so you have to find a way if you want to find out whether someone is envious or not, you can't ask them, are you envious or not? You have to find, to ask some questions that we, we call it indicator questions where you can find out, for example, what means envy? Envy means you, you want to reduce the gap between you and someone who's rich, for example, not by improving your own situation, but by tearing the other person down, by uh, making his situation worse, not make your situation uh, better, but make his situation worse. And so we had some questions as, for example, I would favor drastically um, um, uh, more that, that, that millionaires should pay much higher taxes, even if I have no personal advantage. Another uh, statement was, I'm in favor of drastically reducing 
the, the compensation, CEO compensation of top managers and distributed more evenly uh, among their employees, even if everyone has only two dollars more, the same principle to make situation worse for someone, even if everyone has not really an advantage. Or another question was, we called it the schadenfreude question. It was this question, if I hear that uh, um, a millionaire lose a lot of money due to a risky business, I think it serves him right. So if people you know, have fun when some it's bad for others. And so we had a lot of questions and in the end we could- And you also had questions about uh, attitudes towards millionaires or attitudes towards wealthy people, right? Yes, and there, were, there people... were a lot of questions. And in the end, we could distinguish between two groups, the enviers and the non-enviers, as you mentioned before. And in the middle, there were some, we call them the ambivalent words, not really, really clear. And the social uh, envy coefficient that you mentioned it's exactly, uh, you, you grabbed it, it's the ratio between enviers and non-enviers in the country. And to make it a little bit easier, uh, the, the purpose was to find one number to compare different countries, how enviers are people. So every number bigger than one means that there are more enviers than non-enviers and every number smaller than one means that there are more non-enviers. And, and now we did it in 12 countries uh, uh, and um, the most envious people are in France. Not they a are, huge surprise there, but... <laughs> not a really surprise. I tell you a funny story about, about France. No, I, I mentioned my next book will be published in 27 countries all over the world, but I was not successful to find only one publisher in France. It's, it will be even published in Nepal and Mongolia, and it will be published in Japan and Korea, everywhere. But there was not, not one single publisher in France. I tried very hard to publish only one of my books. So it's, it's easier to publish not all some of my books in China than in France, so by, by the way. And we had another survey uh, on, at a footnote, I can tell you later something about this. In defense of capitalism for this, my next book, we had another uh, analysis, a survey about the attitude toward capitalism. And one of the results was that the most anti-capitalist people you can find in, in France. So it was not a surprise. Followed right. by Germany. So, so France was very, was very uh, had a, I think it was a 1.6 ratio of enviers. Well, um, 1.26 uh, was 1. the 1.26, okay. And then Germany Holland. also high enviers, Spain high enviers. What, and then uh, UK was low enviers right after that. U and then UK lower and United States much lower. But in United States, there's a big difference between older and younger Americans. Older Americans were exactly the way as we in Europe think about Americans in favor of uh, private uh, uh, business, uh, capitalists, rich people, and the younger were more critical to rich people and capitalists. So there was a, a huge difference. By the way, in Italy, it was the other way around. The younger people were more pro-rich and the older one were more, uh, it's different in, in every country. Yeah, that I thought it was interesting that it flipped, that in France and in Italy and in Germany, uh, even though that they were higher in their coefficient, had more enviers, 
you saw that flip a little bit that if you found non-enviers, they tended to be younger than in the United States, higher percentage of non-enviers. But very disturbingly, uh, that also flipped that the, the young were more likely to um, have negative views about rich people and negative yes. views about, uh, about capitalism. So, and, and the most positive attitude and the least envious people are in Japan, Japan and Vietnam. <laughs> I, I, I did now, you, you can find it on the internet if you Google. I, I published a paper about, um, about social envy in um, Asian countries, uh, uh, economic affairs. It's a British uh, libertarian journal and I, I published an article there. Uh, you can find it uh, free on, on the internet. And there you see that people in, in Vietnam, especially in Japan, are least envious. And I was now in Vietnam. It's, it was very interesting um, because this is the only university who grabbed my idea and they do now their own research about envy against rich people. And they invited me at the Foreign Trade University in Hanoi. They invited me to a workshop about envy against rich people and what can you do against envy against rich people. Imagine such a workshop in sociology in the United States or in Europe. It's, you, it's uh, yeah, not well, one of the takeaways that, that I have is that since knowing a millionaire uh, greatly reduced the amount of envy that you had, right? <laughs> so that I thought was interesting. And that's one of the reasons that the Atlas Society um, among the subjects that we dramatize in our animated Draw My Life videos are entrepreneurs like Chip Wilson, like Peter Diamandis. Uh, we do interviews with Michael Saylor and other uh, billionaires uh, and, and hear their stories because, hey, we might not all be able to meet or get to know personally a millionaire or a billionaire, but at least we can give you a little bit of insight in, into their worlds. So what do you make of the, um, what are the factors that are contributing to a society with greater prevalence of enviers? What are some of the implications uh, for the kinds of policies, policies and governments that they invite? Yes, let's uh, allow me first to come short back what you mentioned, because it's a very important point. Um, we, we asked also everyone in our survey whether they know a millionaire or some millionaires in person. And most people do not know in, in really in, in, in person. And then we asked this group, what do you think about personality traits of millionaires? For example, we, we, we presented to every one of our respondents with a list of 14 personality traits, seven positive and seven negative. For example, positive personality, honest. And in most countries, it was this way. For example, one or two or three percent of the general population said rich people are honest. And then we asked only those people who knew a millionaire in person about his personality traits. And then there were much more people who said he's honest. For example, 20% instead of 1%. It was in all countries where we did the survey, there was a huge gap. And so uh, I appreciate very much that you, uh, that you give people the opportunity 
when it's not in person, but even there to, to learn a little bit more about uh, which people and successful entrepreneurs, because this is the big problem that most of the people know them only from media, like Hollywood movies. And we, we have, I have one chapter in this book, I, I did research about the image of rich people in, in Hollywood movies. And I think it comes not as a big surprise that it's an overall uh, negative image, rich people in Hollywood movies. And I can tell you maybe a funny story. I, I had an interview with, uh, similar to our interview, but the interview was very left-leaning. But in a way he liked me and I liked him as a person. And in the end of the interview, he asked me, please be honest for a moment. Isn't it this way that the rich people are in, in reality the same way as we know it from the James Bond movie. So this was his question. And I asked him, okay, one question. How many multi-billionaires do you know in person? Zero. How many billionaires do you know in person? Zero. How many people who have some hundreds of millions do you know in person? Zero. How many millionaires do you know in person? Zero. He knew not even one millionaire. And then I said, okay, this is the difference between you and me. You know them from the James Bond movies. <laughs> I know them, for example, from my interviews, from my doctoral dissertation. So he had, to, he had to laugh a little bit because this is about prejudice. You speak about people that you don't know. You, uh, you hear only in the media something about them. But sorry, right. this was only uh, no, no, no. another I, question. I, I think that, well, I, I want to, because we've got about... 15 more minutes and I don't want to neglect all of these people that are popping in with their questions, um, some of which actually have specifically to do with Germany. So I would want to try to get to Kingfisher's question from Facebook. Uh, thoughts on the recent economic insolvency happening in Germany? In Germany, it's a very bad situation. It's oh, yeah, I mean, uh, it's that and there's the energy crisis and there's there's, there, there's a lot. The, the first thing is that since years, since the time of Angela Merkel, we go more and more in the direction of a planned economy. They don't call it a planned economy, but in fact it is. And the energy policy is only a perfect example. It has nothing to do with the market. Uh, um, there was a very good uh, article three years ago in Wall Street Journal. The headline was the dumbest energy policy in the world. And was about Germany because first we phased out nuclear power plants, we forbid fracking, we then made the decision to phase out coal power plants uh, in the hope that we can do all with solar energy and with windmills, but they are not there. It's like the same, you are not happy with your house and you tear down your house in the first even before you have the key to another house and even you don't have the billing permit permission for another house. And this is exactly what's happened now. Of course, it's very crazy. It's ideology driven. And in, in German newspapers, there are every day in our article how to prepare for blackout that can happen maybe in a few months, blackout. But I made a joke on Twitter. I said, don't call it blackout, call it green out. Because mm. this fits better. Call it green That's out. Great. That's by great. the way, by the way, if you say blackout, maybe some people can think it's racist because <laughs> you shouldn't do something with black with negative connotations or right. call it green out. 
it's but I just got my Tesla power walls. <laughs> so <laughs> even living in California, hopefully no more green outs for me. Um, also getting to Europe, I got a question here, Ison on Facebook or actually Instagram asking, are European countries primarily socialist countries with capitalist elements or are they capitalist countries with socialist elements? I think all over the world, there is nowhere pure capitalism and there's nowhere pure socialism. It's all uh, a mixture between both elements uh, uh, today. I compare it also, I, I call it the test tube theory. I have it in my book, The Power of Capitalism. Imagine you have a test tube with two ingredients, market and state or capitalism and socialism. And then you see what happens if you add more market as they did in China or in Vietnam in the last 40 years, or if you add more state as they did in Venezuela, for example, in the last 20 years. And so uh, I think this is important to understand economic development, even if there is, the, the, the great thing is with capitalism, you don't even you don't need pure capitalism. Even a little bit of capitalism can help a lot. As you saw, give your example from before I speak about Europe. Give your example from Vietnam because I was there. A lot of people don't know this. 1993, Vietnam was the poorest country in the world, even poorer than all African countries, and 80% lived in poverty. Today, it's less than five percent. Why is that? Because they started 1986 with pro-market reforms. And of course, it's not a pure capitalist country. They call themselves socialists. But I can guarantee you, you can find more Marxists in the United States than you will find in Vietnam. But, um, but you see what happened. And in Europe, for me, it's, it's, it's a mixed system. For example, in Germany, after Second World War with uh, this uh, policy of Ludwig Erhard, Erhard, this was our success story with, with uh, uh, market economy. And this was the secret. And then they added more and more state. And in the beginning of the 2000s, we had some pro-market reforms in Germany. Then situation became better. And now we go back again in the direction of more planned economy. Poland, another example. Poland is the most successful European country in the last 25 years. You have to know they were the poorest country in, in, uh, in the East, Eastern Bloc in socialist times, poorer than Ukraine. And they had only half of GDP per capita than Czech Republic. And then they started with their economic uh, reforms pro-market. But now, again, they go, they go back to more state and so it's always a thing that develops and the big problem not only in europe almost everywhere in the world if you compare the situation in the beginning of the 80s we had a lot of pro-market reforms we had maggie thatcher in the uk we had ronald reagan in the united states we had deng xiaoping in china we had the so-called doimo reforms in, in uh, vietnam even in Argentina at this time, or in Italy, you had a little bit of pro-market reforms. And now it's the opposite. Everywhere where you look, in China, they go back to more state. In the United States, of course, they go back more state. In Europe, they go back to more state. And this is the reason why it's so important what, what you do with your work, because it's a, 
it's a really terrible situation now. Yes, and you know, politics they say is downstream from culture, but culture is downstream from philosophy, which is why we believe it's so important to convey the philosophy and the ideas of Ayn Rand uh, to a public that is largely completely oblivious uh, to who she is and to, to what her ideas stand ah, for. By the way, I can tell you a funny story. I know Ayn Rand fan here in Berlin and he has a small group and I made him a suggestion, but he didn't do it, I don't know why. We have in, in Berlin a lot of street names with Karl Marx and Friedrich Engels, a lot mm -hmm. of them. Wow. And, and I suggested him, please go there in the night and make their Ayn Rand street. Ayn Rand, yeah. And, and make some photos. And of course, people will not know who is this. Never heard of them. But then you have an uh, idea how to talk about it. Yes, there you didn't go. do it. But Perfect. I think it's Guerrilla a good marketing. idea. Ayn Rand street, John Galt street, uh, the Gulch Avenue. So tell us a little bit about your Ayn Rand discovery. And I know you're a nonfiction guy, but yes. uh, obviously, she had um, some of the best essays on envy. The way that she talked about it really was not about coveting what somebody else has, but about uh, wanting others not to have it, wanting others to, to uh, suffer and to die. It was the, the hatred of the good for being good. So tell us a bit about what her work means to you. Yes, the, the last thing that was very important uh... Maybe I mentioned this because this was very important. Um, I, for my next book, In Defense of Capitalism, I have one chapter about monopolies. And I read some papers or essays that they wrote about uh, monopolies and about this antitrust policy. And it was so amazing for me because even some people who call themselves pro-free market or classic liberal today, they have always this crazy things about against monopolies. Even I don't speak only about left-leaning people. Of course, they they always tell, oh, how dangerous is the the the, the monopoly? The monopoly. The same time they are in favor for state monopoly. What is <laughs> I, I will never understand how to fight against monopolies to to have then the absolute monopoly, the state monopoly. But I don't they speak about left-leaning people. I speak about, about people who call themselves classic liberal or even libertarian and they are, yes, we have to do something. They have this emotion against big business and against monopolies. And so this was for me very important to read her essays because this was exactly the same as I thought. I found it uh, from her and from few, only from a few others. I, I found it also from, I have a friend at Beijing University, his name is Chang Wang, and he, he had the same, he wrote the, the same as Ayn Rand did about monopolies. And you can never make it right. If you make uh, the prices too high, then they say it's like a, a monopoly price. And if you make it too low, it's not. And I believed what she wrote that it's, that, that it's crazy to say the state should do something against the um, monopolies because the biggest enemy of monopolies is free market and is capitalism. And mm -hmm. you and now today we see that that she was right. I give you only two or three uh, two or three examples. 
if the monopoly is on the height of their power, always people think it will never go away, it's everlasting monopoly. But this is not true. I found an article 2007 in Guardian, in this British news people, with the headline, will MySpace ever lose its monopoly? Who knows MySpace today? And there was uh, the same year on the cover of Forbes magazine, it was about the uh, Nokia, that they will never lose their monopoly. Who, who knows about Nokia today? And you know, in the United States, it, was, it happened with Kodak, it happened with Xerox, for example. And you had a lot of companies that you called a monopoly. And, and today there are in insolvency or they have only minor market share. And this proves that she was right because this happened all after she wrote her papers about monopolies, but reality proved her right that uh, because uh, all of this monopolies I mentioned now are so-called uh, monopolies like uh, uh, Xerox or, or, or Kodak or a lot of others, they were not ended by antitrust policy, but by capitalism. Yeah, by upstart competitors. Yes. So um, we're about at time. Um, I know it sounds like you've got a bunch of your books planned out and your travel uh, schedule planned out. Tell us the best way to keep track of you and uh, hopefully hear about announcements of your upcoming books and the upcoming adaptations of your books into audio format as we discussed. Uh, should we follow you on Twitter or sign up for a newsletter? What's our... Oh, I, 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 to, to be honest, I do not enough on Twitter in, in English language, a little bit, but not enough. And of course, I think most of uh, your audience cannot uh, understand germs or have to, to change it. Maybe, no, the best is to read my books. And, and uh, I, now I, I, I wrote uh, 27 books. And of course, I cannot expect everyone to read every book. But I think I can recommend to everyone my book, The Power of Capitalism, we haven't spoken about this today, but this is a very important book. This is with a chapter about the intellectual. So it's good that we didn't talk about it. So people are maybe a little bit more curious to- No spoilers. To, 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 to order it. And, um, and uh, my next book will be published in January, In Defense of Capitalism. And this is maybe my most important book. And I'll tell you why. It, I, I haven't uh, written it for anti-capitalists because I'm sure they will not buy any book like this. They prefer to buy book number 35, Why Capitalism is Evil, than only to touch one pro-capitalist book. So, but I wrote it for, for our audience, for people who are pro-capitalism, but of course, they don't have all the facts. You know, for this book, you find in the bibliography, I used 360 scientific papers and books, and I did a poll and, and a lot of this. And I have chapters, 10 chapters, about all this popular myth against capitalism. For example, capitalism is to blame for hunger and poverty. Capitalism is to blame for inequality. Capitalism is to blame for climate change, environmental degradation. Capitalism is to blame for monopolies, for greed. The chapter about greed and egoism, of course, also you find in some, some chapters, a lot of arranged uh, quotes there. 
in the book. But my idea was that if you have a discussion with anti-capitalists, you can't be good on all of these topics, you know, like monopolies or inequality to, to, to really have all the facts. And even you don't have to read to the whole book, but if you know, for example, next week in your university, there will be a discussion about inequality or about climate change, then read only one chapter and I guarantee you have all the facts that you need. And so all right. this is maybe my most important book. We are looking forward to it and uh, perhaps you'll come back and join us for, for when it's published. So thank you so much, Dr. Zeidelman. I really appreciate it. This was fascinating. Thank you for your work. And thank, I want to thank- Thank you very much. It was a pleasure to speak to you. And I hope uh, first we will meet in person, very important, hopefully so. And next, if we don't meet in person next few months, hopefully in January, we will have our next uh, conversation. Or if you invite me to some of your conference, I would be very happy to come there. I can guarantee I'm very happy to come there. Fantastic. Thank you so much. And I want to thank all of you who joined us today. Thanks for all of the excellent questions as well. As always, if you enjoyed this video uh, you and you don't feel comfortable being a, a free rider and just enjoying something and uh, not exchanging something of value, then consider making a tax-deductible donation to the Atlas Society to support our work. Um, please consider tuning in next week as well. I'm going to be interviewing Walter Isaacson, of course, the great American biographer. So I'm looking forward to that. And, oh, um, <laughs> I, read his, I read his book so, about <laughs> Albert Einstein, for example. Yes. His book about yes. Steve Jobs. I, I, I read a lot of his books. Amazing that you that you have the privilege to speak with him. It's amazing. Well, you know, you're going to be a hard act to follow, but uh, we're looking forward to it. And hopefully you'll tune in as well and ask some of your questions. So I can thank guarantee you. you one thing, his English will be much better than mine. Oh no, your English is fantastic. <laughs> no, no, I, you know, here, I tell, you, I tell you a funny story. I had this discussion, this free to choose people. And then, yes, but you have this German accent. I know, but imagine, you know, Arnold Schwarzenegger, you know, I'm a little bit like him. He has also this German accent and he became very successful. So hopefully. <laughs> yes, I know. I, I, I agree. Lay it on thick. It, it sounds uh, sounds very debonair to these American ears. So thank you, Dr. Deidelman. Thanks, okay. everyone. We'll see you next week. Thank Bye. you. See you. Bye.